Gerry O'Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit and theologian, and you would have known Father Hans Colvinback, the former Father General of the Jesuits, who died earlier this week. Can you tell us a bit about the man and his background, first of all? Yes, he was born in the Netherlands, and um, as a young man, he uh, studied to be an engineer. He was interested in the vocation to religious life, but initially it was the Dominicans that he was interested in. But at the age of 20, he entered the Jesuit novitiate. He came in contact with the spiritual exercises. And just from from that and from other factors, he came to understand that he'd have more scope in, in his life, at least, um, to do what he wanted to do or what God wanted him to do in the Jesuits. So he joined there. He had a great gift for languages and um, he was pretty early on, he was earmarked for an academic um, career, if you like, in linguistics. He volunteered then and was sent out to the Middle East, to to the Lebanon, to Beirut. He worked for a long number of years there in um, an academic uh, setting. He was called at some stage then to be rector of the Orientale, which is the third level institute of Oriental studies run by the Jesuits in Rome. And then in 1983, at the 33rd General Congregation, he was elected general. Tell us about the context of him being elected, because that was not an easy time for the Jesuits. And in fact, probably his role being elected in that was one of his most important contributions as a father general. So can you can you spell that out for us? Yeah, the, the post-Vatican II situation in the church was quite turbulent, as people will know. And there was a lot of controversy and the Jesuits were part of that. And there was unease in Vatican circles about the Jesuits' loyalty as they saw it so particularly with regard to some aspects of our faith and justice apostolate, in particular liberation theology, also aspects theologically of sexual morality, interreligious dialogue was already featuring as something that was what the Vatican later called neuralgic points. So that was that was going on. Um, and Father Rupe was finding himself, his, his powers were diminishing. He was aware that he was getting older. Father Rupe was the then Father General of the Order, and he certainly had um, moved Jesuits in that very strong direction of, of a faith and that does justice. Yes, and he founded the uh, Jesuit Refugee Service, if you recall. But there were some, even within the society, who were uneasy with the direction this was going. And certainly there were many in the Vatican who were uneasy. Arupi himself was always very respectful of the papacy and always very loyal. But when it came to the point of him wanting to retire, the convention was that he'd asked permission from the Pope. And John Paul II, who was newly in the, in the papacy, didn't want him to, to retire. He thought this might set a precedent for other religious orders and maybe even eventually for the papacy. So he didn't. And shortly after that, um, Arupi got a stroke. And really there was a crisis then because Father Vinnie O'Keefe, one of the assistants, was put in as vicar general. But very quickly the Vatican stepped in and two Jesuits, Father Paolo Dezza and um, Pitao, Italian Jesuits, were put in as personal delegates by the Holy See. This was unprecedented to, to effectively run the Jesuits. And there was no time given as to how long this was last, would last. It was said at the time that people expected that there would be some kind of um, fragmentation of the Jesuits. This was a real test, if you like, of obedience. And um, the, the, some people in the Vatican circles were certainly predicting that that would happen. 
But very quickly, Arupe, insofar as he was able to, because he'd had this stroke, but Vinnie O'Keefe wrote to Jesuits asking that they be obedient. And in fact, that's what happened. In the two years from 1981 to 1983, there was a lot of unease, I think, within the Jesuits. I remember it myself and some anger. But there was effective obedience. And then in 1983, the Pope gave the go-ahead for a general congregation to be called. And in the normal way of doing things then, the Jesuits elected the general, and this was Father Calvin Mack. So that was a painful time, and certainly the record seems to stand that there were those who did think there would be a split. That leadership given by people like Vinny O'Keefe and Father Pedro Ruby, because Mm -hmm. presumably it came from him Mm -hmm. in the end, Mm -hmm did seem to unleash another kind of power because I suppose the, uh, Father Ruby had a stroke, he was paralysed and yet lots of people would say for those 10 years it was a very powerful experience for those who met him. Mm-hmm. Did you ever meet him at all in that time or know anyone who did? No, I didn't meet him but I, I was happened to be in Rome at the time and um, I got ill and was in hospital and was visited by Father Cecil McGarry who had been provincial in the Irish province was then assistant to the general. He visited me and he spoke about the situation at the time and it was very clear that there was great consternation in those circles that's in the assistants and so on as to what was happening. And yet, as you say, in the longer run it, it turned out well because what became very clear was that Church politics, if you like, wasn't the deepest level of what was going on. What was going on, in fact, was a great sense from Arupe himself, but then the other Jesuits came on board, if you like, that they saw this as God's work. Not that God would have directly wanted any of this, but this was part of a bigger plan. And um, they were able to wait and be patient. And it turned out then that when Father um, Kalfenbach was was elected general, he was well able to reassure the Vatican on the one hand, and at the same time, give impetus to the Jesuit work for faith and justice for interreligious dialogue. And he coined that phrase at the time, I remember it became very popular years afterwards, to creative fidelity. So it was a combination, if you like, of obedience to the Vatican and at the same time going to the frontiers, not afraid to engage in controversial issues. And he won the trust of the Vatican. I mean, I think there was a real breakdown in trust prior to that. And his great genius, if you like, he wasn't a charismatic man in the ordinary sense of the word. Arupe was. But his genius, if you like, was this kind of quiet diplomacy and wisdom which allowed trust to be rebuilt. And he did that very effectively. So that's interesting because then at GC33, the process which Jesuits have just been through now in terms of electing a a new Father General seems to have worked again, that the right person, as you say, quiet, not necessarily charismatic, and yet would have seemed to have been the right person to carry through there what needed to be done and to, to hold the ship steady, as you say. Yes, and I remember reading about the present Pope, one of the ways he described himself in that first interview to the Jesuits was that he was a sinner, he said, but he also said, uh, I'm astute, I'm an astute person. And I think Kalvenbach shared that. He, He was wise and astute and 
he knew how to, a part of it may have been that he was actually ordained in the Eastern, the Armenian Rite, the Orient, Oriental Rite, and he had a great respect for Eastern wisdom, if you like, and he often contrasted that to the more conceptual, rationalistic approach in the West. The East like to leave questions open. They're into mystery in, in theological terms, into the apophatic approach. You don't know everything about God, and therefore you shouldn't say too much or try to, to, to say too much. And I think that helped as well because later on when there were various controversies and there were arguments about uh, theological positions he had that kind of inner sense of wisdom and something happening that wasn't always able to be put into words and uh, that helped him I think to negotiate some very tricky situations. Yeah, one of those tricky situations involved the Jesuit theologian Jacques Dupuy, Mm -hmm. um, the book that he wrote and in fact, some of the issues about Christ in that book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very tough time. The the CDF, the Congregation mm-hmm. for Doctrine and Faith, went mm-hmm. after him really strongly. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a wee bit about that mm-hmm. controversy? It did also involve, once again, interreligious dialogue as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting that way because at a personal level, he was actually very um, unassuming. And some people found him a bit off-putting in the sense he wasn't a hail fellow well met kind of person. But when you got to know him in various situations, he was actually very convivial and very sociable and he'd talk about things and that was one of the things he talked about that whole situation and again some of it had to do with his his own immersion in eastern theology and um, he knew that Dupuy was immersed in Indian theology and had the same sense even with his western background of trying to mix the more rationalistic western theology with the eastern sense of mystery But also it was said afterwards, and I've heard this on good authority, that he did attend all the sessions of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. Father Jerry O'Collins was the official representative of Father Dupuy, but uh, Colvin Mack was present. And at the last of those sessions, he was asked by Cardinal Ratzinger, who was head of the CDF, but wasn't uh, prosecuting the case, if you like, was just chairing it. He was asked if he'd anything to say. And those who know Father Colvin Mack know that during long meetings, he very often looked as if he wasn't paying any attention. He'd be scribbling his own notes about something else entirely. But he just looked up at that point, apparently, when he was asked to make a contribution. And he said, Father Dupuy is doing what the Holy Father asked us to do, to engage in interreligious dialogue at the frontiers. And then he put his head down, and that's all he said. And it was a good example of the kind of... He wasn't being aggressive, but he was just pointing to the deeper reality of what was going on. He was supporting his man, but doing it in a very respectful kind of way. And I think it's fair to say Mm. that we can't go into that whole controversy now, but Mm. certainly what started off as a massive range of points and notifications and things were pulled back dramatically and I think anybody reading it now would know that in the end Mm. Father Dupree was actually treated terribly unjustly. Interesting that just in that area that Father Colvin Beck he did resign Mm. so in a way Mm. although Father Rupi had wanted to Mm -hmm. he was one of the first Father mm. generals to do that, am mm. I correct? Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the very reason that it might be setting a precedent, mm. Ratzinger, who was mm. 
pre- the, the, the head of the Congregation mm. for Doctrine of Faith and then mm. became Pope Benedict. Mm-hmm. Resigned himself, a mm. big, big step, mm. first time ever mm. for a Pope. Mm. Now that is fascinating because again, I recall being in Rome at a time when Calvin Mack would like to have resigned. This would be in the early 2000s. But John Paul II was still Pope at the time. People knew his mind on these things. And John Paul II, if you recall, was getting very ill himself. People talked about him being crucified in front of the world. This is the way he died. And that was almost taken as the norm that you you died at your work, if you like. And, and But Calvin Mack didn't believe that was the way things should be. And then when Pope Benedict came in, he approached Benedict about it and Benedict agreed. That was in 2008. And that was interesting because Benedict was to do that himself later on. And Benedict is on record as saying that the the manner in which John Paul II did it should be seen as an exception. He wasn't criticising it, but rather than the norm. So it, it could well be that the Calvin Mack resignation, if you like, had wider significance, not least the fact that uh, Benedict, when his own time came and he grew older and he grew weaker, if you like, and felt unable to do the job in the way that it should be done, felt freer to resign himself. You were at the General Congregation GC34, as you've Mm. said. You would have met Father Calvin Mack there as well. Mm. Overall, from all the times you've met him, because we'll talk, he came to Ireland as Mm. well. Mm. What was your sense of him? Ah, he's a very good man and a very unassuming man, as I've said. Um, not somebody who would immediately inspire you in that very open way that Arupe did, for example, and that Pope Francis does. But very, very wise um, and very friendly when you when you when you got to know him. Um, very unfashionable in lots of ways. I don't think he'd be on Twitter or into Facebook or anything like that. <laughs> His dress sense was terrible. <laughs> at the end of the congregation I was at, GC34, they had a concert and Father Vinnie O'Keefe was the compere and he told all kinds of jokes and then he introduced this novel thing of awarding prizes for various things like the most valuable, most vocal person in the congregation <laughs> was given to somebody who didn't say anything at any stage <laughs> and the snappiest dresser was given to, the prize was given to Father Hans Colvinback. <laughs> And people just laughed because he was a terrible dresser and his clothes were old and shabby and so on. So he was very, very uh, unassuming, but very genial and in in that sense of welcoming in, in a very sincere kind of way. Just somebody that when you got to know him, you, you, you liked him uh, very much. And tell me about his visit to Ireland were you provincial at the time? On one of his visits to Ireland, I was provincial, yeah. I, I remember the excitement about it, but I remember two interesting kind of things when, when you look back on it. He was a very capable man linguistically. He knew all kinds of languages. But he wanted everything prepared beforehand. I found that uh, encouraging in a way because I, I like to be well prepared myself. And yet I would have thought that he'd be much freer in one sense. But even for smaller communities, for masses and so on, he wanted things prepared. Now, sometimes, and much to uh, the benefit of everybody, he went off key then and, and just spoke more spontaneously. But he was very he was very happy to, to be in Ireland. I, one of the f- highlights for me was the visit to Northern Ireland. He went to Belfast, he went to Portadown, he went to Armagh, and he engaged with local people, I remember, in Portadown. There was a meeting in the local community centre, and it was a very lively interchange. 
And one of the questions I remember from one of the local women was, why weren't priests married? <laughs> and he was saying, well, they are actually. In, in the Eastern Church, they are married because he was very familiar with the, with the rite of the Armenian Church. But he, he enjoyed that kind of interchange even though sometimes he was slow to allow himself into that space. You yourself are involved in interreligious dialogue. Did you find that he made a contribution in that area in terms of his leadership of the Jesuits? Did that help you in any way? Did it help other Jesuits? Particularly given that it was such an allergic topic around the Vatican in the earlier days and post-Vatican too. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he, on all kinds of areas, including interreligious dialogue, he was very, very supportive um, I mean, again, with regard to the whole faith and justice apostolate as well, because I think there were, if you think of the 80s, the number of documents that came out from the Vatican about liberation theology and so on, there were all kinds of fears. And yet he was very encouraging of Jesuits to continue their work, to do it in a respectful kind of way. I mean, I think it was the kind of era where... Um, some Jesuits continued to, to get into trouble and he tried to support them as much as he could, but he didn't want them to be rash. And I think the way of pushing the boat out then was by way of asking questions rather than advocating uh, positions which were at variance with uh, church teaching. So he had a very Jesuit way of, of going at it and you picked that up very quickly, that if you did it in a way that was respectful and yet honest, he would support you. As provincial, I was part of a group that met every year to look at the Roman houses, so the Gregorian and the Orientale, the Biblicum. So in addition to my visits there as provincial of the Irish province, I was on that group. So I met him quite a lot and I had been part of the international group of theologians before that, so I met him in that capacity. And what always stood out was he had this very, very um, nice way of greeting you when you came. He said, welcome, most welcome. This was his way of, and you really felt he meant it, you know, that you, you felt at home with him. And he was very supportive and at the same time, quite challenging. He wasn't somebody who you knew that he had read what you had produced for him and that he'd listened to you and to others. And so he was addressing real issues. It wasn't just a pro forma meeting. It would appear all in all that he was the right man cometh the hour came the man. Nowadays, the things that were at such tension points then are now just taken for granted. So he did manage to hold things together long enough and in such a way that they could bed down because now, I mean, the Jesuit faith that does justice is not an allergic issue. Mm. It's it's mm. part of the common parlance, interreligious dialogue more important than ever. Mm. So a very inspired appointment. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it's, it's, he was the person, if you like, for the long haul. He had a, a division which saw down the road. And I'm quite sure he felt deeply and got angry at times with what was going on, but he was able to act in such a way that saw the bigger picture. And I'm sure he had a great sense of humour and, uh, as I say, he was very astute and wily and so on. I'm sure he'd be smiling now just at the way things have gone in the direction you've described and also in the direction that the church has gone under Pope Francis. So that whole ability to imagine a more collegial kind of church where people can speak more openly, where people listen to the sense of the faithful, and above all, where there's that notion of discernment. He wrote some masterly things on discernment, and the fact that this has become mainstream church way of proceeding 
uh, under Pope Francis would have given them great satisfaction, but also, I say, a certain amount of amusement. Uh, he would have smiled because, uh, in some sense, he was not the, he wouldn't be looking for cheap victories, but it was a vindication of that waiting approach, that patient approach, just doing what you can at the moment in very difficult circumstances in the hope that spaces will open up in the future. I think that's what has happened and we owe a great debt in the in the Jesuits for his wise stewardship over that very difficult period. If you were to sum up his legacy to the Jesuits? I think he performed an amazing job of creative fidelity. So that whole task of building trust again within the church without sacrificing the Jesuit integrity and the Jesuit vocation to be at the frontiers and at the margins. So that was an amazing feat to do at a very difficult time when things could very easily have gone wrong and could have split up and there could have been deep, deep trouble. And he was the very steady hand at the tiller, if you like, who negotiated our way through that difficult period.